We began last week a, a little series looking at Psalms 113 through 118. Uh, and I mentioned then that these are the, the, the Psalms that the, the Jewish people sing at Passover. And therefore, they're the Psalms that Jesus and the disciples would have sung at the Last Supper. These are the last songs of Jesus. Uh, hours later, he was betrayed, arrested, put on trial. Uh, the next day, he was crucified. So the, these songs... Um, are, if you like, some of the last things um, uh, that went through Jesus' mind uh, before going to the cross. So let's read Psalm 114, page 510. When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. The sea looked and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skip like rams, the hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? O mountains, that you skip like rams? O hills like lambs? Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water, the flint into a spring of water. Without wishing to go from the sublime to the ridiculous, a few months ago, just before Christmas, uh, I was in the cinema uh, out Kirkstall Way uh, watching the modern-day classic Frozen 2. And I'm not going to spoil the plot for those of you who have not yet seen it. Uh, my explanation, for those of you who don't know me, I've got two very young daughters. I wasn't there just for my own benefit. Uh, and Frozen 2, it's, oh, it's a PG or it's a U, I suppose. It's, it's rated for children, but, but, but my daughters are little, okay, six and four. Uh, and at the first sort of sign of a baddie, uh, one of them disappeared sort of un- under my arm. Couldn't bear to look anymore at the screen and just kind of wouldn't come out. I don't know if you've seen children doing that. Um, she, she, the same one has got the habit of if anything comes on TV, she sticks her fingers in her ears if she doesn't like it. And, I, and the only way I could get her out again to, to look at the, the screen, first ever trip to the cinema, the only way I could get her out again was saying, don't worry, they all live happily ever after. Don't worry, they all live happily ever after. Now, the six-year-old at this point, the older sister, said, how do you know that, Daddy? You've not seen it. <laughs> okay, fair. But I'll be honest, I've seen other Disney films, and I'll have a wild stab in the dark that say they do. Don't worry, they all live happily ever after. And after that, the four-year-old, well, she was willing to watch, albeit clinging on tightly. We can face almost anything if we know there's going to be a happy ending. We can face almost anything if we know there's going to be a happy ending. Your life will be full of, well, tragedies. There will be baddies, uh, to use Disney's language. Okay, whether it's uh, people, evil Hans, whatever his name is. Uh, Whether it's the threat from nature. I could really push the frozen analogy here, the rock giants. But whatever it is, there will be trouble in your life. Uh, there will be things that scare you, things you can't control. The only way I want to suggest, the only way you can face those confidently, not be crushed by them, is if you know that the last chapter of your life is going to have a happy ending. If you know that on the final page of your earthly life, when your last heartbeat strikes, when the last breath leaves your body, is if you know that that is the beginning of the rest of the happily ever after. 
Uh, there was an uh, American soldier who rose to be a general. Uh, it's called Stonewall Jackson. And uh, when he was a, a younger soldier, sort of back in the, the 19th century, when he was a younger soldier, uh, he was noted for his bravery. And so his captain called him in and said, why is it, why is it that you seem so much braver even than the rest of the men? And he said this, Captain, my religion teaches me I'm as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I don't concern myself about that, but rather to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, then all would be equally brave. My religion, he's a Christian. My religion tells me I'm as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time of my death. I don't concern myself about that, but rather I'm always ready. Why was he so brave? Why, why was he willing to charge into battle? Because he was confident that even if that was his last day, then actually it was just going to become the first day of the happily ever after. We are people who fear, aren't we? I didn't used to. I think when I, when I was younger, I, I just never crossed my mind to worry about stuff. Not because I was brave, just thoughtless. But then things come into your life. I think having children sort of shook me a bit. Uh, a close family relative died. And, and from now on, I, it's, I find it difficult. It's very, I find it very easy to panic about things. I get a cough and I'm convinced it's, it's lung cancer. I've just sort of got ridiculous projection. What, what calms us? How, how, how do we learn to cope with fear? Psalm 114 tells us one of the things we need to do is learn to sing, but to sing the right songs. This is a song that is meant to give us confidence. It's a song that when it becomes our own song, when we can really take it onto our own lips, allows us to be like Stonewall Jackson. I'm as safe in battle as in bed. It allows us to look at the coronavirus and say, well, I will wash my hands. I will self-isolate. I will obey all the wisdom and advice. But if it comes for me, so be it. It'll simply be the turning of the page to life happily ever after. Songs often give uh, confidence, don't they? A far greater film than Frozen 2 but one perhaps less, uh, less seen nowadays, at least. Anyone seen Zulu? It's a great film, Michael Caine, one of Michael Caine's great films, Zulu, where the, the British army are fighting, probably a bad war, to be fair, but still, they're fighting a war. They're, they're hugely outnumbered. Uh, there's about 100 of them left, uh, and, and the rocks drift, uh, and, and the Zulu army are coming towards them, and, and the Zulus start the war chant. Uh, and, and the soldiers begin to tremble. So that the captain of the, uh, the, the British army, realising they're beginning to fear, gets them to sing. Rather than shouting at them, come on men, man up, be brave, he gets them to sing. They start singing Men of Their Welsh, they start singing Men of Harlech. Okay, and and it just, it's so rousing. This song, Psalm 114, was given to Israel, the people of Israel, to rouse them, uh, to make them look at their enemies and not fear. Even before we look at the details, just, just to see the, sort of the top and the tail, the, the, the beginning and the end, um, helps us to understand why they would sing this song. Do you see at the beginning, it looks back when Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. It's a song that, that people would sing every year. The Jewish people would sing every year at the Passover feast, this annual celebration, a bit like Easter for us, I suppose. They would sing every year celebrating, verse one, that time when God rescued us out of Egypt. That time, in other words, when we were slaves, it was 400 years, they were slaves, but still God conquered and brought us out of this country where we were in misery, 
oppressed, a people of a strange tongue. We couldn't understand what was going on. We were a minority. We were overpowered. They worshipped other gods. That's part of what's going on with a strange tongue. It's not just foreign languages. It's they worship gods we don't understand. We, we were rescued from complete oppression and brought, well, if you know the Bible story, brought to a, an earthly paradise, the promised land, the land of Canaan, sometimes the land flowing with milk and honey. They're singing, in other words, about the time God rescued them. But it's not just sort of misty-eyed remembrance. It's not just looking backwards. After the Israelites sing about this, this rescue in the past, verse 3, the sea fled. We'll, we'll look at what that is in a minute. This time that the Jordan River turned back. What do they do? Verse 7, they sing, Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord and the presence of the God of Jacob. It's not just a, a song, a sort of history song telling them and reminding them what happened in the past. It's a song where they they remember what God has done in the past, how God has conquered all these enemies, and therefore they're able to say, tremble, O earth. Because God can do it again. The implication is, it's it's subtle, but you see, the implication is God's not finished yet. He is going to come and again conquer. So as David or... Isaiah or Jesus and the disciples sang this psalm, sang this song. They're both remembering what God has done, but they're also aware that he hasn't finished yet. And the aim of the song, the aim of the psalm, is to be able to look everything that stands against us in the eye, everything that normally would make us tremble, everything that makes us fear, and instead say, you fear, you tremble. It is you who should be afraid, not me. How do they sing? Let's pick out a few things. Uh, it begins with God's desire to be with his people. All this rests on, not on the bravery of the Israelites, but on God's desire to live with people. Uh, verse 1, this exodus, this bringing of God's people out from slavery had a purpose. What was it? Well, it wasn't just that God is anti-slavery, although he is. It's not just that he thought Pharaoh was a bit uppity, although he was. See the purpose? Verse 2. Judah became God's sanctuary. Israel, his dominion. Judah and Israel are just two different names for the, the people of God, the Israelites. That the purpose wasn't just to set Israel free and say, well, there you go, I've got rid of the chains. And the, the purpose was that God would come and live with these people. A sanctuary is a holy place, a temple a place where God dwells. Uh, Israel, his dominion, his kingdom. That the purpose was that God would come and live with his people. Now that has been his promise from the beginning of the Bible. It remains his promise now and it's still his promise in the future. His promise is, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be with you. That is the purpose of God rescuing people. Both in the Exodus and in Jesus' death on the cross. It is not simply that we can be forgiven. It's not just that we can go to heaven and live forever. It's that we can be with God, or rather so that God can be with us. The good news about that is that yours and my happy ever after rests on God's desire to be with you far more than your desire to be with him. Even if you'd call yourself a Christian, or you are a Christian, you're sure you're a Christian, you know that your 
desire for God waxes and wanes, goes up and down. It yo-yos. The odd time, maybe, I don't know, a big conference and everyone's singing. And I remember being in a stadium in America and there's about 20,000 people singing. And you are just, it's electric. And you come home and you're on your own and just go flat. Our desire for God is very up and down. But thank God, his desire for us never changes, never falters, never wavers. He wants to live with his people. Uh, He wants to be their king, to bless them. And that is why he rescues. This whole happy ever after rests on that, not our desire to make it to the final page. And so what does he do? Well, he comes and conquers all the enemies. In verses 3 and 4, well, we get it at the whole of the Exodus story compressed into a little poem. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. The sea looked and fled, Jordan turned back. What, what's he speaking of? Uh, two, two, two stages of the rescue, this Exodus rescue. Do you remember they're in, they're in Egypt, uh, they come out, God, God brings them out through the plagues, all sorts of things, and, and Moses leads the people of Israel into the desert. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and says, right, hunt them down, sends his army, the chariots, to hunt them down. And the Israelites are coming away from Egypt, and it's as if the Egyptian army is chasing them from behind, and ahead is the, is the Red Sea. And they're completely trapped. Mountains to the left and right, Pharaoh behind with the chariots. They're a ragtag bunch of refugees. No weapons, no chariots, no horses. And in front is the Red Sea. It is certain death. There is no way they can escape. And so what does God do? He parts the sea and they walk through. The sea looked and fled. It's as if the sea has a personality. Poseidon, you know. The the, the sea itself sees the power of God, the fiery, cloudy pillar that led them to the desert and just flees. Even the mighty ocean knows it has got nothing if it's going to go head to head with God. So through they go. Uh, and out uh, into the wilderness. Uh, for 40 years they wander, and eventually they come to the promised land. But again, they're blocked, this time by the river, the River Jordan, verse 2. Sorry, verse 3, the Jordan. An insurmountable, this is it's not a little kind of river that you can just roll up your trousers and walk across. Okay, put on some wellies and you'll be fine. It's a big river. There's no way you're walking across it. So what does God do? Well, again, he parts it. Uh, he, the, the walls... The, sorry, the waters that were builds up like walls and they're able to walk through safely into the promised land, into paradise. Now, what, that's good for the Israelites. What, what, what does that, what's that got to do with us this morning? What's it got to do with your life and my life? The sea fled, the Jordan turned back. Start with the Jordan. Uh, in a minute, if you look on the back of your, your uh, service sheets, uh, we're about to sing that hymn, Guide Me, O Thou Great Redeemer, Great Jehovah. And the last verse begins, When I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. When I tread the verge of Jordan, one day you're going to come to the Jordan, the hymn is saying. Why? Trip to the Middle East? No. Jordan it becomes symbolic of death. Okay, when I tread the verge of Jordan, bid my anxious fears subside. Talk about death. When I come to death, why? Okay, I don't know who wrote the hymn, but whoever wrote the hymn, what, what, why is he saying that? Why is he saying Jordan? 
or comparing death to Jordan. Because in the story of the Israelites, the last thing they went through, the last barrier before they got into their paradise on earth was the Jordan. Like it's the final obstacle before paradise arrives. It is the entry to their, at least picture of, happy ever after. And that is exactly what death is for God's people. It is the entryway, the doorway to eternal life. And God has conquered it. Uh, This coronavirus uh, has reminded us, as we prayed earlier, of the one certain fact in your life, which is you will die. I don't know if that's why you got out of bed this morning to come to be told. If you're new at church, is this what goes on every week? Got up early-ish, came out, and now there's a guy telling me I'm going to die. But it's the one true fact, isn't it? You may marry, you may have kids, you might buy a nice house in the country, you might one day visit Australia. Uh, you might have grandkids and great-grandkids. Who knows? Hope so. But you will die. Uh, coronavirus has, has revealed that to us, hasn't it? You get, if, you, if you're a bit older, you know that we get these scares every few years. You know, it was bird flu and SARS. and you know, it's all something, Every now and again, another one comes around. And, and, and as if the, it's like a bucket of cold water in the face, isn't it? Suddenly we realise we're not immortal. Now, my suspicion is what's going to happen is basically what happened after September the 11th. I was a uh, student uh, September the 11th, the towers being bombed. And what actually happened, the result was, in America at least, um, that shopping went up hugely. People spent far more money uh, going shopping. Why? Well, distraction. These horrible things remind us we're mortal, so what do we do? Distract ourselves. I suspect, I suspect that what's going to happen over the next few weeks is that Netflix and Amazon Prime and Now TV are going to take an absolute hammering, okay, as people self-isolate, and then because they've got no better answer to the problem and the fear of death, just amuse ourselves. Back-to-back, eight series, 12 series, whatever it is, of friends. But we need a better answer. Now, this psalm is it, it, not... <sighs> It's not fantasy world. It's giving us real answers to the real threat of death. It is telling us that God conquered the last enemy that was going to keep his people out of paradise. And that is exactly what God does in Jesus. How can we be confident we'll cross not just a river in the Middle East, but we'll be able to cross safely into eternal life, into the paradise that God promises? Because God has already, in Jesus, conquered death. All of creation kind of came at Jesus but he was able to conquer. He was in the boat and the storms raged. The the waves were coming over the side of the boat, this furious, furious sort of whirlwind on the uh, Sea of Galilee, and he was able to say, be still, and it stopped. Uh, Lepers came to him, infectious skin diseases that that normally would make your body waste away. If you're touched by them, the fear was it would spread and corrupt you. What does Jesus do? Jesus touches the leper and death flows backwards. Life flows from Jesus to the dying leper and the leper comes to life. Even corpses are brought to Jesus and he's able to touch them and so strong is his life that that death flees from the corpse's body 
and the, the child, the young boy, comes to life. Everything that came at Jesus, he conquered, even death itself. If, if you like, it's almost as if all the earth gathered together to bury, to defeat the Son of God. You know, the trees provide wood for the cross. The earth provides iron for the nails. The plants provide a, a crown of thorns to tear his head. Uh, he is pinned to the cross. Death comes for him, but it does not win. It does not win because, because it has no rights over him. He's the author of life. At the Son of God. He is the way, the truth, the life. Death has no claim on him. Death can only take those who are guilty, and Christ was not guilty, so death had no claim. That's why Jesus says, not I will die, but I will lay down my life. Earth, hell, death, through all they had at Christ, and he conquered. His final words are not a scream of despair, but rather he says, it is finished, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. He laid down his life. It wasn't taken from him. He utterly conquered death and then rose again three days later. Yes, he was buried in the ground. The stone rolled in front of the tomb. But that's not going to contain the author of life, the Son of God. Death fled just as the sea turned and fled. The Jordan turned back. The rock rolled away and he rose to life. Uh, therefore, it, in him and in him alone, it's the answer to all our fears. Whatever comes at you now can only bless you if you're his. There's a passion of 1 Corinthians. Let me read uh, just a, a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians. and they, it, it sounds almost unreal. Uh, Paul writes to this church in Greece, a little city called Corinth. And he says to them this. This is 1 Corinthians 3, but uh, I'll read. Uh, let no one boast in men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Kephas, or the world or life or death, all the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God. Everything is yours, he says the church. You know, these teachers, Paul, Apollos, Kephas, never mind them for now. The world, life or death, it's all yours. Even death is yours. What does he mean? Why is death ours? What he means is because we belong to Christ and Christ has conquered everything, then everything in creation, everything in existence, is yours in the sense that it can only bless you ultimately. It can't harm you. It can't separate you. It can't overpower. It can't tear you away from God. can't tear you away from paradise. can't tear you away from the happy ever after. There is no chapter in your life that, that ultimately ends in doom and disaster. Nothing can prevent you getting to that final and they lived happily ever after because Christ has conquered. The coronavirus, if it comes and gets you, if you've had your sins forgiven by Jesus, the worst it can do to you is deliver you to paradise. That's the worst it can do to you. Even an enemy has become a friend. And that's what's going on in the Psalm 2. You're still looking at it, Psalm 114. 
uh, the, jaw, the, the, jaw, the sea looked and fled, that Red Sea parted. Do you remember what happened next? It parted and let the Israelites through to, to head on their journey to paradise. And then what did it do? Well, as the enemies of the Pharaoh and the soldiers came to chase them and kill them, the, the, wall, the water collapsed back over them. The very thing that looked like it was going to bar God's people from entry to paradise actually became the means to secure their entry to paradise. It was the thing that protected them. Death itself. Uh, defeated. Per George Herbert said, death used to be an executioner, but because of the, re- the resurrection means he's just a gardener now. He's just a gardener. He's just there to gather you into paradise. Or the great evangelist, D.L. Moody is a, a 19th century evangelist, uh, and, and like many evangelists and missionaries, basically barking mad, but in a good way. And he said this, one day you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it? At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that's all. Out of this old clay house into a house that's immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body like his glorious body. I was born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the spirit in 1856. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. One day you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't believe a word of it. One day you will read, probably not in the papers, that J.G.T. Rhodes is dead. Do not believe a word of it. One day you will read that Zach Leach is dead. Do not believe a word of it. I went to the whole congregation. You get the point. And that's why we sing. That's why the people of Israel sung every year at Passover. The enemy is defeated. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. His desire to be with his people means that he has even come and conquered death. So what remains? Well, just the mountains skipping like rams. See verse 4? The mountains skip like rams, the hills like lambs. Or verse 6, which is just... a repeat, but a question form. Mountains, why is it that you skip like rams? Why is it hills that you skip like lambs? All that remains is for creation, for paradise, to join in the celebration. Now, there was no, there was no literal event in the Exodus where, I don't know, some hills went dancing across the, you know, the landscape, some, uh, some mountains skipped like rams it's poetry obviously but the point is when when Israel went into the promised land it was as if the land itself rejoiced it wasn't just the Israelites who were cheering even 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 the, the the hills the mountains the forests the seas were singing for joy yes God has done it it's exactly what again the New Testament tells us that one day when Jesus returns the whole world will be transformed in Romans 8 Paul says that the, that the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God, even the world itself, the physical environment, is waiting for the day when death is finally thrown out and we rejoice forever. And Charles Spurgeon, who was a, a, a preacher in the Victorian era, said that the world, you want to imagine the world like, a, like an orchestra, um, poised. So the violin, violinist's got his bow on the strings, the trumpeter has got the trumpet to his mouth, the harpist is poised, the drummer has got the sticks up, and they're ready to explode into praise, but they're waiting, waiting, waiting. Cobwebs have grown over them, so you don't quite see the glory. They're not yet sounding as they ought to. You can see what they're meant to do, sort of, 
but the glory is not yet revealed. Creation is just waiting, tense, waiting to explode into life. And who knows exactly what that will be like. But, but the idea is that God rescuing you and me and countless millions and millions and millions of people, even that is not going to produce enough praise. Jesus is so worthy of glory, so worthy of, of honour and worship, that the God has to get the angels in on the act too, to sing and bow down and worship. But even that's not enough. So he brings the trees to, to clap their hands, the mountains to dance like, like uh, skipping lambs, the stars sing for joy. We are headed towards a world, not just where, thank goodness we don't die anymore, but a world that is just triumphant in its joy and exuberance and praise. Paul says it'll be like no man has imagined. So I, how, how do you even begin to describe that? How do you describe an unimaginable world? Well, with poetry. Mountains skipping, hills gambling like lambs. Just, did you feel the, the, the joy, the exuberance? And one day it'll come. Come with me as we close, right to the end of the Bible, the last book, Revelation chapter 20. It's the only time in the New Testament this Psalm 114 is, is picked up, and even then it's just an illusion rather than a direct quote. But Revelation 20 is on page 1040. And we're right at the end of the world now. We're right at the end of the world. Now remember, in the psalm, the seas, creation flees from God. Creation, as it comes as an enemy to God's people, flees away. What do we see? Verse 11 of, of chapter 20, down the bottom there. Then says John, I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. This is the judgment day, the day of the return of Christ. And Paul says, the, the, John says the earth and the sky fled. Never mind the waters fleeing, the waters of the Jordan. And never mind the seas fleeing. That was small scale. One day creation, earth and heavens, the sun, the moon, the planets, the Himalayas, the Alps, the Amazon, the Nile, Great Britain, China, Australia, the Atlantic, the Pacific, they will flee from his presence. What's the idea? The idea is this old world of death and danger is just going to be banished out of sight. It's not that from then on we'll just be floaty spirits, because what happens? Well, chapter 21, just a few verses below, verse 1 then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Confusingly, the, the, the word sky in, in verse 11 of chapter 20 and the word heaven in verse 1 of, of, of chapter 21 are the same word. I don't know why they've been translated differently, but they have. They're the same word. All earth and sky, heavens, flee away. But then new ones are brought in. And what are these ones like? Well, these are stunningly in, stunning in their beauty. And verse 4. There will be a land where God is with them. Sorry, verse three. That promise again. God comes and says he will dwell with us. We'll be his people. And he's going to wipe away every tear and, uh, uh, from our eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, nor cancer, nor coronavirus, nor car crashes, nor depression, nor anxiety, nor loneliness. Why? 
Verse 5, I'm making all things new. There will be things that make you tremble in your life. And one day something will seem to conquer you, just as it seemed that the cross and the nails and the crown of thorns conquered Christ. But they will not if you belong to Christ. It will seem as if it is too much for you. But ultimately, even your worst enemies have been transformed by God to bring you to glory. And then on one great day, he will remove everything and it'll be a land of joy and wonder forevermore. And so we sing. You sing. You can look at the things that come up, come to you and say, tremble. Tremble, coronavirus, before me. Not because I am mighty, but because you are nothing compared to the power of God. Tremble, coronavirus, because the best you can do is take me to a world of glory and joy and peace and worship. Tremble, coronavirus, because one day you will be no more, whereas I will last forever. Why? Because the Lord our God is with us. We're humans. We get anxious. We worry. God understands that. Uh, God is kind. Uh, God does not summon simply those who have conquered their fears. But he does strengthen us. And he does by putting songs on our lips. All the enemies crushed beneath Christ's feet. And a world of love awaits. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father, we praise you that in the Lord Jesus Christ, death itself has been defeated. Uh, That all uh, the powers of this earth that could stand against us and separate us from that eternal kingdom uh, have been stamped on, trampled underfoot and destroyed forever. Thank you that he rose victorious from the grave, that the tomb could not contain him. The rock and the stone was rolled away and he now reigns in glory. So lift our eyes, we pray. And give us the faith to know that though we are weak and frail in ourselves, though we tremble and fear, though we know our our insecurity, we are like uh, the grass of the field that is here today and gone tomorrow, that with you and in you, uh, we can say to the world, tremble, because the Lord our God reigns. Strengthen our weak needs, give courage to our failing hearts, we pray, and lift our eyes to see the glorious triumph of Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.